first things first. Um, let me know office hours today because I am sick again. I'm passing this for myself to my daughters and back again. It'll be like this for the next couple of years. <laughs> um, that being said, Paul, next week, next class we're doing uh, Marcus Aurelius. I would like you to present on that. We'll start doing oral presentations, um, which will help save my voice and perhaps my life. Um, first off, what do you think of the Codex Seraphinianus? Was I telling you the truth that this is the weirdest thing anyone has ever thought of? Um, I had to have a copy once I found out what it was. I love books and, well, I like books that mystify me and few will mystify you like this one. <laughs> yeah? Is this the drugs or is this the book? <laughs> you can't tell. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what sort of an imagination thinks up a project like this because clearly it's going to take years to draw this and write this. And, it's been 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet it's the postmodern book. All right, a pseudo uh, encyclopedia for a world that doesn't exist with a language that no one understands. Yeah. It's a, it's a product of the zeitgeist. Uh, uh, you guys got your dose of this too? Okay, and it messed with you. Yeah, okay, good, good. It, this is all a defense mechanism laughter. It's not like, ha, 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 this is really funny. It's, oh, man, put this away. All right. That being said, today... We're going to look at Roman satire. All right. Ah, good. Some of you have read it because you're laughing. And uh, this is something the Romans invent on their own. I mean, we need a, a drum roll for that. Right? <laughs> uh, that some of the Greeks didn't do. And um, I've been teaching Roman satire for a very long time now. And uh, it never fails to be a hit. Um, nearly everybody finds something that they like in this. You wicked creatures. <laughs> uh, judge not, lest you yourselves be judged. But these guys aren't Christians, so they don't care. <laughs> All right, what'd you think? I just have a question. Yeah? So, Horace being born so close to the end dies in 8 BC, I believe. So, no. And uh, I'm sure that Jesus had other stuff to do. <laughs> right. So no, he wouldn't have known that. Uh, it is unlikely that Jesus knew much in the way of Greco-Roman literature. All right, what else? Come on, what'd you think? Come on, don't deny it. You're all smiling. You all think something, yeah. I really enjoy satire, which is the satire of prayers. Yeah. All the things that people pray for are terrible. Uh, nope. It just gets you into worse messes than you began with. Uh, and we should just uh, pray for whatever the gods will anyway, because it's better than what we think we want. There's and a, then maybe we're not even sure if the gods actually exist, so why are we praying in the first place? Okay, yeah, there's a, 
in the Confucian tradition in China, there are curses. You probably are familiar with one. Uh, may you live in interesting times, but there are two others that are worth thinking about. The other one is, may you come to the attention of important people. Mm-hmm. And the last, and perhaps the worst, may you get everything you desire. Oh, oh. So juveniles hit the nail right on the head there, but he does that so often. Right? Uh, he's a nasty piece of work, yeah? He reminds me of Jonathan Swift. Exactly right, clever fellow. That's one of the points I'm going to be making. Yes, indeed. Um, both are full of bile and rage and want to flog everybody and everything around them. Humanity itself. You all deserve it. Wicked creatures. Now, I can see how... Juvenile might get away with it, but Swift was a Christian clergyman. As Swift writes in one of his letters, I write for their improvement, not for their approbation. (laughs) He's a nasty piece of work, too. On the other hand, he's really funny, and he's mostly right. Yeah, that's the worrisome part about this. That's the definition of humanity since Aristotle. There we go. All right, what else do you think? Come on, you're all smiling. You all found this um, funny in a kind of uh, morally uneasy way. Yeah? I thought um, Scientology was really funny. What? I thought Scientology was really funny. Oh, the one against women. His rage and misogyny. He says you're going to get married. There are lots of easier ways to kill yourself. (laughs) Right? There's the noose. There's tall buildings. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Ways you kill yourself right off the top. Why drag it out by getting married? Oh, man. I think it's in there, I mean, that he says um, that women are going to, they're so, like, lustful that they're going to get, if they can't get this man, they'll go for this man. If they can't get this man, they'll go for this man. If they can't get that, they'll resort to a donkey. <laughs> Last. And he really came at them there. Tasteful. I remember that line. <laughs> and, of course, that I, that's, that's a really Roman idea. <laughs> All right? How depraved can we get? All right? And uh, the Romans are uh, a good example of what people like about Christianity. On the other hand, are uh, horrifyingly sinful natures are what people like with Christianity, which turns out not to be all that much better. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, um, uh, animal sex as being the nth degree of lust. We're going to see plenty of that. Abortion and incest. and There's no evil that somehow doesn't make itself known. Yeah, Similarly, he says, uh, why are you going for an adulterous woman? You could just have sex with your slave girl. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, the uh, inclinations of the Roman upper class are really put to the test here. Everybody gets a beating. What else? Nobody knows. All right. My sense is he believes every word of it. Oh, I mean, in other words, he is having the consummate ego trip. Let me tell you all. Remember when I said the easiest jobs in the world are improving other people's morals? There we go. All right. Um, he thinks everybody around him needs moral lessons from him. Okay, what else? 
Come on, gentlemen, don't tell me that you didn't find juicy portions of this and underline them. And you told your roommates about them, too. Because they're incredibly rude and crude and lewd. And... Yes, Brandon? I was still reading the previous stuff in the previous class. Okay. I've been catching up. I Catch up, all right. All right. I, I really like the one where, uh, in, in Horace, where the, the guy is following him and won't stop talking. This is like, this is kind of funny coming from... <laughs> okay, yeah. There is one line where he says, Horace says, don't write to please the crowd, write only for a few, which is ironic, clearly, because he's coming at everybody, so how are you not writing to please the crowd? Okay, well, he's coming at everybody. Um, the question is, uh, how do people take this lampooning? Right? Does it actually improve the world? Does it make people say, you know, right? You know what? He's right. I am a wretch. I better live an upright life from now on, Paul. But it's also funny because it's right for the few, but in reality, everybody who reads this book thinks that they're in the few. Ah, yes, indeed. <laughs> That's something worth talking about. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, but the idea is that uh, um, when people read Juvenal, um, I admit it's a guilty pleasure. I like it too. All right. I mean, and you know, every one of you did. Don't tell me. I don't believe that for a moment. But the question is, um, are we on juvenile side, or are we part of the vast mass of humanity that's so wretched? That's something we're thinking about. Um, what else? Yeah. I could. Um, juvenile just wants to like isolate himself. Ah, this is something you want put a little star in your notes next to that. Next year we will be doing Moliere. What in fact I'm doing is setting up French classical drama with this. So there's a reason why I choose what I choose. Part of it is literary merit. These guys are a screen. I mean, you, you sit there, every one of you, when I say, this is really funny, you go, yeah, yeah, but I don't want to talk about it. Let somebody else talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to reveal how much of a good time I had reading these guys. Right? It's a guilty pleasure, like Euripides in that respect. But these guys aren't mad, aren't mad in the sense of being insane, the way Euripides sometimes is. Um, these are guys with solid Roman values. And uh, they weigh Roman mores in the balance, and they are found wanting. What a wonderful job a Roman satirist could do with contemporary America. I mean, again, it would be utterly politically incorrect. You know that I mean, this would be, uh, there would be a whole bunch of triggered social justice warriors, but also triggered <laughs> Trump supporters. I mean, everybody gets triggered because he hates, and these guys don't like anybody. All right? And who can blame them? If you were surrounded with a bunch of Romans, you think you'd like them? No, yeah, you probably would. <laughs> no, we're all human. Of course we would. All right. um, what else? Yeah. You know how you were talking last class, <clears throat> excuse me, about how the Romans were like trying to live decent community lives and things he talks about don't really seem like the actions of decent community living people. That's a good point, actually. Um, do you think that if we had someone like the Roman satirists in our own 
contemporary world that we would come off any better? Can you imagine any group of people coming off any better? Here's the deal. No one can live up to the moral standards that these guys are demanding. Yeah. So do you think that the, the issues with society that he's satirizing, he's, I mean, he's over-exaggerating them? Uh, I don't know. Uh, given what I know of the Romans, I don't put anything past them. In other words, uh, you know, Tiberius, the Roman emperor, was a pedophile. Um, and, of course, his courtiers applauded him for it because that's what courtiers do with absolute monarchs. Right? Um, there's no um, bizarre conduct. Uh, there's no madness or uh, no sexual depravity that the Romans couldn't take from the Greeks and make better. <laughs> they can go even further. Anything the Greeks can do, the Romans can do, and worse. Yeah. This brings up a, a really interesting question for me, which is the, the this underlying level of depravity that uh, constitutes every society. But there does seem to be the, the efforts of some to create a culture of moral decency do seem to have uh, a, a genuine effect for at least uh, a noticeable chunk of time. We're going to be reading Marx really soon. Mm -hmm. We see it. Yeah. Uh, that there's, uh, it, the, the, the effort for moral decency is not unaffected. That's actually a good point. Um, we are all born sinners, and the Romans. Uh, are expertly filleted here, so we can get the you know the, the substance of their immorality. But there are countervailing forces. Right? Um, does it surprise you that Horace was an Epicurean? What a moderate Epicurean! Right? Um, he doesn't go off on a drunk every night. Right? Um, there are forces in Rome, like Stoicism, which are trying to create moral order, and to some extent they succeed, and these are noble efforts. Next class, when we read Marcus Aurelius, you're going to meet one of the greatest men that ever lived, Stoic Emperor. But for now, we're just dealing with regular, everyday depravity, and God knows there's lots of it. All right? Um, how does Horace compare to Juvenal? Which one? Horace, yeah, yeah. Um, Horace makes you think about yourself and your faults, and Juno makes you think of, like, it makes you kind of, it raises your ego. Ah, uh, yes. That's the hidden flaw behind Juvenal. He's enjoying himself far too much <laughs> to be an honest moralist. He really likes flogging people, and if they were good, he'd flog them anyway. Yeah. Horace is, it seems like he was hypocritical too, because in his last book or like book seven it, it says Horace's sexual follies and he goes on about his stuff so he's telling you not to do it and then the last one of the last books is how he does what he tells you not to okay, do okay that's a good point and there's nothing analogous to that in juvenile this is actually a big deal Horace's satires are inclusive we're all in the same boat there's not one of us to borrow a Christian idea, that has failed to fall short of the glory of God. All right? We're all wicked. What that means is that people take Horace's satire 
to Har. <clears throat> Horace doesn't put himself on a pedestal saying, I'm so much better than you people. You're lucky I came down from Mount Sinai so I could tell you all how bad you are. Well, um, Horace is a good-natured individual. People are stupid. People are wicked. They, they're weak. They give in to temptation. What do you expect? And before you go off on caustically putting them down, remember that you are one of them. Right? So Horace is describing human <laughs> transgression from the perspective of a transgressor. Yeah, Horace has a weird homosexual sex life as well. It was actually fairly common in the Greco-Roman world, at least among elites. Strangely enough, both in the ancient Greco-Roman world and in the modern world, say 19th century England or even 20th, 21st century America, homosexuality is largely, um, at least male homosexuality, is largely a question of elites, of aristocrats. Right? Um, Lower class blue collar guys rarely uh, indulge in this. In fact, they make fag jokes all the time. And of course, there's no shortage of them in, the, in both of these. Right. So, uh, why is that? Why? I don't know why. I think part of it is um, single sex institutions, strangely enough. In other words, put um, a thousand boys together between the ages of, let's say, seven and eighteen, the Spartans did. Um, if they are not given any access to women, sooner or later they are going to engage in homosexual conduct. Just, I mean, sexuality is going to find some way of expressing itself. And uh, I think that's true of 19th century England, too. The public schools are, in fact, private secondary schools and Oxford and Cambridge are accessible only to men. And uh, yeah, there's a, a homosexual subculture there. All right? One of the glaring ironies of the contemporary world is that within the church, it appears there's a homosexual subculture. You know, no, I mean, it, it's impossible that, that that not exist given the extent of the pedophilia scandal. I mean, we should never have allowed that to get even a, a, a nose in the door. And it looks like there is a substantial number of homosexuals in the priesthood, which is a, an ongoing disaster for us. But the sooner we address it and the sooner we do a credible and transparent clear, clearing of, you know, clean, cleaning of the house, um, the better off we and, and everybody else will be. So um, I think it has something to do with um, same-sex institutions. That's one of the reasons why I think that um, it leads us in the direction of sin, if not uh, sin itself. Right? Something worth thinking about. That's why I, I like um, co-educational institutions. Yeah. I think they're actually better for people in the long run. But let's bracket that for now. Um, Horace is the son of a freedman. He is not an aristocrat. He is not wealthy. And if you are socially subordinate, the smart thing to do, pull your punches. All right? Because if you attack particularly 
individually uh, gross immorality, you are likely to make enemies in high places and you will come to the attention of important people. Right. So Horace is smart, but also Horace is more humane. Right? He says, look, I'm not trying to suggest that I'm better than all the rest of you people. I'm a, I'm, I'm a wicked sinner as well. All right? um, because Horace is inclusive, that makes his readers think, well, you know, he's talking about me too. Right? I'm part of this mass of wicked humanity. And he is right that uh, we are driven by passions that are indecent. And, you know, they talk, I mean, the things they talk about, not just abortion, but incest, right? And uh, um, various kinds of adultery and homosexuality and avarice. In other words, you could probably do a pretty good job going through the seven deadly sins, <laughs> finding them here. And look, they're all there, and they make repeated appearances. All right? Um, there's nothing new under the sun. And human depravity is made conspicuous here. And here's the, the idea behind satire, which justifies it. It's not just an enjoyable read. What it is intended to do, and this is the later Christian justification for comedy as a whole, and for perhaps theater as a whole, but comedy in particular, comedy holds vice up to ridicule. And it's worth thinking about the fact that many people are resistant to moral advice. You know, that if you tell them, you should really stop doing that because it's wrong and it's awful. And it's, you know, you're, it's a really twisted transgression. But although many people are capable of ignoring moral advice, almost nobody can stand to be laughed at. Pride is such that we would rather be evil than the object of other people's scorn. So what the satirist does, what the comedian in general can do in a Christian context, is hold vice up to ridicule, saying, this is stupid, this is wretched, this is depraved. Right? And uh, this is something we should eliminate from our lives and from our society. Right? So the point then here is that it is at least possible to justify comedy on the basis of morality. In other words, it's an aid to morals. If you know in the mid-20th century, the old code of conduct that they had in Hollywood, you know, when they couldn't show two people in the same bed, or, you know, it was very restrictive. Um, one of the requirements was that for the plot, bad guys always have to turn out badly. So in other words, Jimmy Cagney, if he's a gangster, is going to have to die at the end. All right? So the point is that the old code for movies was a moral code. They said, look, what you can't do is have a bad person end up winning at the end. Right? It was meant to convey a moral message. Once the code was eliminated, we had the rise of the anti-hero. Right? And uh, there aren't any heroes, as far as I can tell, in Roman satire. 
Right. There's just bad and worse. So Horace is a, a thoughtful writer, but he knows how to ease up on the criticism, pointing out that it's not just Mr. X or Mr. Y that's depraved. The whole species is depraved, including me. All right. Now that including me is important because that means the satire is inclusive, we're all in the same boat, and people will take his lessons to heart because they're given no refuge, there's no alternative, everybody's wicked. All right. That's why Horatian satire is uh, one of the traditions of satire established by the Romans, but this is good-natured, all right? And it is not excessively puritanical. So, uh, Horace is the source of our famous Roman line, Carpe Diem, which is what you would expect from a, an Epicurean. You know, get your pleasure now, because tomorrow is uncertain. And uh, I particularly like, my, my favorite is uh, the tenth uh, satire in the first book. And he talks about scouring the city with caustic wit. But he, he also justifies the kind of satire he writes is, humor is often stronger and more effective than sharpness in cutting naughty issues. And actually, that's actually, I mean, that's true, but it shows a certain maturity of mind and uh, a soundness of judgment I find attractive. Um, again, he, he always includes himself in his, satir in his satires. I myself once tried to compose a piece in Greek in spite of being born this side of the water, but after midnight, when dreams are true, Quirinius appeared and stopped me. He said, for you to aspire to swell the mighty ranks of the Greeks is just as silly as carrying a load of wood to the forest. And that's pretty much the case. In other words, uh, there's pretty much no reason why anybody should be writing literature in Attic Greek anymore. Um, the Greeks for whom it was a living language pretty much did what you can do with that living language. Um, unless it's a, it's a, you know, you're doing something for a class, there's no point in that. Similarly, uh, I'm not sure, I mean, this is something worth, perhaps worth thinking about, um, my view is that tragedy is at this point in history a dead form, like the symphony. Here's why. Tragedy, as Aristotle says, requires a particular kind of a hero, right? a superior individual, right? a royalty or a general or some very important heavy hitter. Right? But that was the product of an aristocratic age, an age which assumed human inequality because, remember, the idea of equality comes from Christianity. What that means is, is that in our age, when, and although we have differences in wealth, but we don't have differences in status, at least, at least, um, uh, at least uh, 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 conventionally, right? Um, everybody's equal before the law, right? So what that means is we don't have the right size people for tragedy. In other words, it's hard for us to uh, see a superior man or a superior woman uh, causing some great tragedy. Um, 
people will be elevated to, to superior status, like running the U.S. Army or the U.S. Presidency, but they're plebs who have been raised up. You know. What about something like Citizen King or The Godfather? Um, hmm. The Godfather, um, I don't know if it's tragic. I see that as epic. Okay. Okay. But remember that Aristotle says that you use the same kind of hero for both tragedy and epic. Yeah, maybe so. Um, but look what we've done in the case of The Godfather. We raised a poor immigrant boy, all right, who was smacked around by, by fate to the status of a better-than-politician. Mm -hmm. Because the politicians, at least, are hypocritical, whereas he just says, look, I'm a, I'm a crook, I'm the head of the mafia, but I did so so I could take care of my family, and I make no apologies for it. Same thing with Citizen Yeah, that's exactly right. And even that it's not the same as a Homeric hero. They're wealthy and they have big houses, but it's not... They're still plebs. They're not. In other words, the idea of distinguishing between patricians and plebeians by some intrinsic quality that they have, nobility, um, we don't have that idea anymore. So I, I think that what this amounts to is I think all the great, all the tragedies, the great tragedies that have been written have already been written. You know, I think it's a dead form. Similarly, I think that the symphony is a dead form. Right? Um, once Beethoven writes the ninth, there's no reason why anyone should bother with that. That everyone should be quiet thereafter. If you ever sat in and heard a, a performance of the Ninth, um, at the end, people don't know if they're supposed to clap or not. In other words, clapping in some way seems profane. Everyone should shuffle out without making a sound and just let that ring through the orchestra. Right? I mean, if you know the Ninth, you know what I'm talking about. Fourth movement sounds like God Almighty. All right? I mean, applause to that is just it's worse than irrelevant. Right? So I think all the great symphonies have already been written. I think all the great tragedies have already been written. But for those of you who are interested in literary issues, I think there are still great comedies yet to be written. Why? Because we're as stupid as these people. And we're as wicked as these people, too. Uh, we find new ways of being wicked and stupid. I mean, who would have ever thought that the President of the United States would have a flame war with a porn star? <laughs> Tell me this is not true. In other, yeah, right. This is funny. I mean, how have we gotten to the point where 20 million people are following on Twitter um, an orange president who has, I mean, to call it a weakness for women is much too far too Horatian for my purposes. I mean, he needs to get a good juvenile meeting. For God's sake, why is it that no one on his staff takes that phone from him? I mean, I can't believe they allow him to still have that. He's up at 3 o'clock in the morning because he's pissed off about something, and he tweets out something he doesn't think about, doesn't know anything about. Uh, we are in a, a, an advanced state of decay as a yeah. So, I mean, as Larry said, can you be able to make the argument that we haven't really changed in terms of the stuff that's happening? Because you're talking about, like, with the depravity of the emperors and, like, with Trump and everything. Would you just say that we're just the same as we've always been? Well, um... We haven't really done anything. Yeah, my inclination is to think that, uh, I mean... Nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun, but also Augustine was right about us. We're just awful. Right? Especially me. And I have my doubts about you. <laughs> you know, well-founded doubts, no doubt. 
But uh, yeah, I think people are just awful. I think that the most dangerous uh, self-deception of the Enlightenment is Rousseau's idea that people are naturally good. That goes straight to Marin County and we drink white wine and we talk about how people are naturally good. The problem with that is that if people are naturally good, how the hell did society turn out to be such a mess? Where did that evil come from? Because it's not found in any of the individuals making it up. There's no good answer to that. Yeah. Do you think comedy as an art form will ever die? No, no. I think it's just, it'll be here as long as wickedness and stupidness are here. <laughs> uh, I, I expect to see that until Revelation, or until the, the apocalypse. All right. So I think that there's still new entertaining comedies. I mean, it would be wonderful. You could write a, uh, an absolutely hilarious comedy about um, the West Wing of the White House in the last couple of years. I mean, because, you know, it's one ca catastrophe after another, one public relations atomic bomb twice a week. Um, and so they must be going, and they must be looking at each other like, I can't believe that I have to go and clean this mess up. I mean, imagine being Donald Trump's press secretary. <laughs> Why in the name of God would anyone choose such a job? It boggles my mind. You have to go and explain why this makes sense, or why this is not really a problem. Yeah, it's a hell of a big problem, actually. The money's good. The money's good, yeah. Um, you know, there are easier ways to make fair money. So, yeah, uh, comedy is, I think, the most humane of the dramatic Uh, and I think that we are, like the Romans, in a pretty advanced state of decay. Every culture has its ups and downs. Um, I think that we're on the downside and have been since 1945. All right. No, um, I don't think it's entirely our fault. I think that uh, 1945 was a very anomalous moment in world history because everybody else that had any money had destroyed each other. And we were just sitting there. All right, um, with tremendous debts owed to us by everybody. And, uh, you know, we hadn't bombed our cities flat. So it's impossible for us to regain 1945. But the Romans at this point, at least with Horace, uh, we've, he's a contemporary of Virgil. He knows Virgil. All the Roman uh, poets associate with one another. They go to literary... Uh, the analog of literary salons. They read their poetry or recite their poetry, as the case may be. And uh, Horace is, a, is like a concerned parent. All right? uh, parent finds marijuana in a kid's drawer. All right? We have to have a talk. All right? But if you have a talk, right, um, telling them this will make you insane or that this is dangerous, um, probably isn't going to have all that much of an effect. If you were to say, look, um, you're trying to live a moral life, it's very hard to do while intoxicated by anything. Maybe true. If you were to make a joke of it and say, look, this is stupid, I know you're doing it, stop it, don't be an idiot. All right? That may actually be the best way. As Horace says, sometimes humor does what sharpness can't do. All right? And again, Drug use is not something to be, to be laughed at unless it's with the intention of creating a moral improvement, in which case maybe it is 
a good thing to be laughed at. Right. So Horace is, a, is an inclusive and good-natured satirist. And a good-natured satirist is like a white crow. Right? There are damn few of those. And uh, on the whole, yeah, um, Horace can see the redeeming qualities even in our vices. Um, as he says, this is uh, Satire 1-3, before examining your own faults, you smear ointment on your bloodshot eyes. But when it comes to your friend's foibles, your sight is as sharp as an eagle's. Hmm. That's actually true. Um, and Juvenal hasn't uh, been born yet, but what he's doing is saying, look, this is what's wrong with Juvenalian satire. Unfortunately, your friends in their turn scrutinize your deficiencies. So-and-so's a bit hot-tempered, not quite up to the curling nostrils of modern society. He may cause amusement by his haircut, his sloppy toga. The idea, then, is that Horace is a humane satirist. He wants moral improvement in his friends and in society at large, but he is indulgent towards them. I mean, what is, what's the great line there? Yeah. Uh, this is where you, if someone has a various faults, you make the best of them. So is he something of a hothead? Then put him down as a keen type. Uh, or suppose he's rather ill-mannered and outspoken to the point of rudeness. Let's call him forthright and fearless. I really believe this habit both joins and cements friendships. And actually, that's true. Have any of you fallen in love with a flawed individual? Nay, you have not. Your friends see them, you do not, which is why you are so tedious in explaining the virtues of your beloved to your friends, to the point where they want to shut you up. There we go. Um, again, this is really funny stuff, all right? And what Horace tells us about ourselves is, alas, true. And it's hard not to say, you know, all right, admittedly, I do lose my temper a little too much, or I do talk too much, or I do spend extra extravagantly. In other words, when he points out your flaws, it's hard to say, no, you're wrong. If you do, he'll say, you're the kind of guy that says, no, you're wrong, and I like you for that. <laughs> I'm willing to kind of shrug my shoulders. I don't expect people to become perfect. Hell, I don't even expect them to become any better. If they do, that's good. But um, it's not absolutely essential. We do what we can with the imperfect world we live in. Okay. So Horace is kind of a nice guy. Now, can you think of a modern satirist here, I mean since 1500 or so, that is comparable? The answer is Erasmus. Erasmus is a really good-natured guy. He's one of my intellectual heroes. Because in an age of fanaticism and insanity and cruelty and depravity, he's one of the few reasonable people of goodwill. He's a Catholic and stays with the church. I think that's the right thing to do. I don't want to get involved with the Reformation or the wars of religion. But he says, although I'm a Catholic and I'm on the side of the church, um, a lot of what these Protestants are saying about stuff like selling indulgences 
really has to go. This should have been eliminated 200 years ago with the Council of Peace and the Council of Constance, and you didn't. And the reason why is because a lot of the clerics that were at these councils were making money off this. They had gotten their jobs like this. Remember that Erasmus is the illegitimate son of a priest. So he knows only too well that corruption has entered the church and it needs to be fixed. It's kind of the way I feel about the pedophilia scandal now. I'll stick with the church, but um, heads should roll. And if they haven't, there's something seriously wrong. In other words, what we need is a transparent and comprehensive and credible moral house cleaning. First, we get rid of everybody that was involved in the sexual abuse of children. That should be 100% eliminated. Turn state's evidence on them, toss them all in jail. Then, though, the problem is we have to then go back once we've gotten rid of the pedophiles and said, all right, now I want to talk to you guys that preferred public relations to justice. You and I have to have a talk. And, yeah, a fair number of them need to be cashed in as well because uh, they are insufficiently concerned with right and wrong. Anyone who helps someone sexually abuse children is an accessory both before and after the fact and needs to pay the, the price. Um, and I don't say that because I hate the church. I say that because I love it. Right? Same with Erasmus. I mean, look, we can't have priests fathering illegitimate children. We just, that, that's no good. All right? uh, I think Erasmus is uh, my idea of an excellent Catholic intellect. I gotta admit, I'm, I admire the guy. He wrote a, book, uh, a, a sermon called "In Praise of Folly." What is it? And it's a great, it's a funny book. I mean, it's not hilarious like this, but it's not as rude and crude. You know, he has some sense of decorum, which of course makes it less amusing. Right? But uh, "In Praise of Folly" is Horatian satire, and uh, both of them are moral men who are not on an ego trip. They're just men who refuse to give up on the distinction between right and wrong. Okay. Now, let's move from Horace to our friend Juvenal. Now, here's the deal. Juvenal is nobody's friend. What do you think about Juvenal? See, I can tell you that you're thinking something because you start to smile involuntarily. Yeah. Well, honestly, I have, like, Juvenile was really funny, but it got a little bit old after a while because it was like, you just hate everybody and everything. And I, like, it starts to have less of an impact because there's no discretion. In Clever girl. That is exactly right. Juvenalian satire is much more entertaining to read than Horatian satire, right? And the reason why it's much more entertaining is because nobody thinks that Juvenal's talking about them. In other words, Juvenal is the last relic of old decency. Said, I, and only I, hold on to traditional moral values. I am the last of the good Romans. Now, the idea of elevating yourself to the last of the good Romans all right, is on the face of it preposterous. But juvenilian satire requires that he place himself on a pedestal, the better with which 
to flog everybody. Everybody needs a good beating. All right? And if there's any moral transgression, any vice that he's left out, he says, I'm going to just beat the rest of you on general principle. <laughs> everybody needs a good beating, except me, because I'm the last of the good Romans. Now, everyone who places himself in that position is engaged in an act of self-deception. Right. Um, Augustine's confessions would be far less moving if he said, you know, everybody's wicked except me. Right. That's the difference. Um, juvenile, he, well, as, as someone said, um, the poet can command our respect but the man cannot command our affection. In other words, there are many people who admire his spiked style. I mean, uh, juvenile satires are the literary analog of a cactus, right? <laughs> Touch it at your peril, because wherever you grab it, you're going to get stung. And you deserve it, you wicked creature. In a strange way, the, it's, in a non-exclusive um, there are books of the Bible that uh, have the same uh, vehemence. Uh, Jeremiah. Like Ecclesiastes. Oh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Yeah. But it's but it's inclusive. It, it's like the chosen people have fallen. That's and right. I'm one of the chosen people. Way of thinking about uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the other prophets. He's a chosen man within the chosen people, so he's extra chosen. But that also means he's extra responsible. And they say, look, we've fallen away. We have, Yahweh says, get with the program or he's going to send in the Babylonians. And we get the Babylonians. All right. So you're right. Um, but the difference is, is that um, prophecy as a, a genre is not a, a species of comedy. Right. I mean, in other words, when, when Jeremiah is laying it on people, or in lamentations. I mean, that's really bad. Um, there's nothing funny about that. The desolation of the temp of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which he prophesies, um, this is not supposed to be enjoyable. Right? Whereas Juvenal is obviously having far too much fun. In other words, he is a nasty piece of work, and uh, he seems to have nothing good to say about anybody. Every conceivable bit of gossip, every moral transgression, real or unreal, is going to get included. What do you think of Juvenal? I mean, I saw you smile when I asked you, so I know every one of you has an opinion. Yeah, yeah. Paul. Well, I mean, it's funny because I, I think that he jumps straight into like really bad stuff. He doesn't work his way up. I mean, immediately in book two, he's talking about. Um, people like castrating themselves and then marrying and then you know homosexuality and uh, transvestites and all that but I sounds like, like America yeah <laughs> <laughs> I like satire 3 though because it's where he gets into what people have to do in order to work their way up in politics oh yeah social climbing in Rome oh god and that, that's the one that I think hit I don't know, that hit closer to, that hit really close to home. It's just, 
topic I'm interested in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, juvenile doesn't like anybody. All right. If you can imagine, it's hard to imagine a more loveless poet. All right, and uh, he is not willing to extenuate anybody's transgressions. Unlike Horace's, as well, you know, you can look at the, you can take that in the easy way or the hard way. Juvenal says no. There's only one morality. It's me. All right, and then he lays it on everybody. And I mean. The stuff that he is criticizing is pretty rude and lewd and crude. I mean, you almost wouldn't believe that people were capable of this. Um, I had no idea women were so bad. <laughs> I mean, but he's astonishingly misogy uh, misogynistic, which would be a particularly noteworthy if he didn't hate men too. <laughs> right? He doesn't like anybody. Um, he doesn't like politicians. He doesn't like uh, guys who are in commerce. He doesn't like slaves. He doesn't like freemen. It's impossible to find a category of human being that he does not think is deserving of a good beating. Yeah? That comment made me realize that he also reminds me of Nietzsche. How? That's interesting. It's hatred. Well, okay. Fair enough. But Nietzsche takes himself so much more seriously. You don't take himself seriously, too. Yeah, yeah, he does. Okay, fair enough. Um, you're right. Uh, Juvenal says... I, I know what morality is, and no one lives up to it. Now, what he's do doing is turning himself into everyone's judge, right? And uh, improving other people's morals is one of the easiest jobs in the world. Right? That and spending other people's money. Right? We recently borrowed a trillion dollars to pay off for the tax cuts of last year, to add to our $22 trillion debt. We are spending other people's money. Y you like that, or is it? <laughs> no? <I'm> just... <laughs> look, you're you're gonna. I mean, look, I'm gonna be gone by the time the bill comes due with interest. You get to pay it, and so do your children. All right? Spending other people's money. Another term for that is theft. <laughs> right? Being optimistic. Be optimistic. I'm reading Roman satires. <laughs> Nothing optimistic about that. All right. Um, why is it that this is a, a genuine Roman contribution to literature? I mean, the Greeks thought about everything else. Why not this? Yeah. It seems like this is the kind of thing that happens as a society is slowly decaying, and Greek society seems to have decayed so quickly that it didn't have time for that. Okay, that's certainly part of it. Yeah, um, there's a there's a sense of decay, of impossible breakdown and corruption, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a process rather than an event. Where it's more like an event in the case of the Greeks, but also we're thinking about Greece, Athens, or any of the other polices. Um, everybody knows everybody else. And again, if you make personal enemies, you end up like Socrates in the Apology. All right? So um, what's amazing about Greece in the fifth century BC is the fact that in three generations, they had an astonishing concentration of the 
most profound and important thinkers. And most of these guys know each other, right? Um, Aristophanes writes a play about Socrates, but he also puts Euripides in another play, right? And he has various other demagogues like Cleon in other plays. So everybody knows everybody else. It's a small group. Remember, Athens has maybe 50,000 people in it. Of those, the elite are certainly less than 1,000. Right? And if you look at the subsets, those that are involved in art, for example, even then it gets much more um, tight-knit. Whereas in Rome, it's immense. It's enormous. All roads lead to Rome. And tribute, slaves, money, ideas, goods, all flow into Rome. All right? So you're attacking a stranger rather than your next-door neighbor. And that does make a difference. Yeah. Couldn't you like argue then that he's only getting like a basic overview if you don't if you're only attacking the stranger, not the person that you know like really well? Could you get can you say that he doesn't actually know what the people are like? He's like I think it was talking about, it might have been Horace, that he travels around because he's poor. He just travels around different places. He can do whatever, just observing people. But wouldn't he not get, like, a full understanding of, like, who they are if he's just traveling around and observing people? Well... Not, like, who they actually are. It depends. I mean, you're not going to get intimate acquaintance with people in the case of Horace. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that Juvenal is intimately acquainted with anyone, including himself because he's under the illusion that he is the last relic of old decency. Right? The fact of the matter is that if you're going to chronicle the decline of your culture, you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. That's a fact. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, his Germania is the beginning of noble savagism. In other words, he looks at the Germans and says, look, Germans aren't involved in homosexuality. None of them have much in the way of money. They're terrifically good fighters, and they have fleas, which, in fact, they do. So Tacitus says, look, better a tough fighter that has fleas than a Roman with exotic perfumes, all right, who looks like uh, an Epicurean that's been at the pleasures too long, so, um, Romans know that there's something wrong with their society. They just don't have a fixer. Yeah. Uh, this, like, these satires make you feel like all of Roman society is terrible, but like, there's a reason it's great, right? So, like, well, we read Wilkins, uh, you know, uh, the Christians as the Romans saw them. Remember that, that from you know, last week? And uh, it turns out that what we're, we th- perhaps thought were these bloodthirsty, um, power-mad individuals were actually quite reasonable, and also trying to do the right thing. In other words, these were moral men. All right? Um, So, yeah, great power brings with it great temptation. And over the long haul, human beings will succumb to temptation. Yeah? Uh, I also thought it was interesting to see in Juvenile and Horace, like, how far the Roman citizens have strayed from, like, their ideal citizen is like Aeneas or a stoic, a more stoic person. Yeah. I mean, even in juvenile, the person that's criticizing them isn't very, doesn't very conform to this ideal of good Roman, even though he calls himself. 
That's right. Um, hypocrisy is everywhere in a declining society. Right? People gesture at the good but make allowances for all kinds of evils. Um, you could write a very good satire just on the basis of flipping from channel to channel on cable TV. I mean, the stuff that pops up by the vegematic or uh, uh, transgender activists decide that they're neither male nor female. They're one of the 99 different kinds of non-binary sexuality, which mean, which is just imaginary, and we all have to go along with this and pretend that, yeah, that makes sense. All right. um, Horace and Juvenal give us the underside, the nasty part of Rome. Next class, when we read Marcus Aurelius, we'll actually see something. It's not only respectable, but astonishingly um, surprising and unlikely. Yeah? We're actually reading Lucian. We're, we're reading Lucian. Sorry, I lost it. All right. Um, who wants to, to, to present Lucian, the skeptic? Come. You're all going to present something, so go, yeah, do that. Um, Skepticism is a likely outcome of an overflow of information. Right? When you constantly get a, a barrage of more ideas than you can process, it's inevitably tempting to throw up your hands and say, look, I can't figure this. Who knows what the answer is? And of course, um, skepticism is, uh, is a dead end. Um, so, uh, we'll, you know. um, so when I first read Juvenal, I kind of thought that he was being sarcastic, at least to some degree, which it sounds like he's not really. Um, but it made me wonder, like, is satire the reason that we have sarcasm today? Mm, that I don't know. Um, it depends on the relation, uh, on on the relationship, I think, between sarcasm and irony. They're not the same thing. Sarcasm is when you say the opposite of something and the person you know, you're talking to, immediately grasps that you mean the opposite, like, good idea, <laughs> right? Um, on the other hand, irony is when you say the opposite of what you mean and the person goes, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mino, virtue comes from the gods and you're a really smart guy. Absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> of course. So uh, that's the difference. My sense is, is that uh, sarcasm is always implicit in irony, and that existed much earlier. Right. Yeah? How do you think that Juvenal stacks up with Aristophanes in terms of their conservatism? Uh, that's hard to say. Um, Aristophanes is a, is a talented poet, but he's not really all that bright. The sense I come away with with Juvenal is that he has a fairly keen intellect, but he uh, takes refuge in traditionalism because he doesn't know what moral reality is. Right? In other words, he'll say, look, you know what? We're not very much like Aeneas. We're not very much like uh, Scipio Africanus. We're not much like the Romans of, of old. 
So there, he would agree with Aristophanes there. My sense is that he's a, probably not as talented a poet, but probably a more intelligent individual. Right? I mean, his nastiness is cultivated. You can't get this caustic without working very hard at it. Right? Uh, both Aristophanes and Juvenal are willing to take the cheap jokes because you, you just take what comes your way. You know, like the, the lizard crapping on Socrates, big laughs there. Or, I mean, and good God, I mean, there's just no end to, uh, to the nastiness of our friend Juvenal. I mean, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite of Oh, um, I think uh, number six, the uh, attack on women and marriage is... I mean, it just goes on and on. In other words, Horace's uh, satires eventually end, whereas this just, he keeps coming up with things that he hates, <laughs> things he doesn't like. People, he, he said, oh, I forgot to include him and her. And it, yeah. Why do both Horace and Juvenal have such bad opinions on marriage? Oh, because uh, the old Roman virtues connected with marriage uh, are breaking down. And uh, there was never much stigma associated with adultery for men. There was for women, and the reason why, and, and actually it's almost exclusively aristocratic women, well-born women. And the reason why is that um, uncertainty as to paternity of a child right, in the highest circles can lead to conflicts over property, but uh, among the ruling elite, uh, they can also lead to civil war. Right? Who's the legitimate heir? Well, that's an important deal if there's a big inheritance, but it's a much more important deal if it is uh, the empire. Right? And that's, of course, why, um, uh, say, uh, Odysseus can have sex with Calypso or any of the other nymphs that he encounters, but uh, Penelope can't. Part of her virtue is making sure that the line is continuous through your Odysseus. If not, then you would have a civil war on your hands. But here, um, both the males and the females have abandoned any pretense of moral order. All of them are pursuing their own emotional impulses, and they're doing it um, in a pretty shameless way. Right. They've gotten to the point where some of them don't even hide it anymore. Remember what he says uh, about uh, some of the Roman aristocrats who like to get dressed in drag uh, and find uh, uh, male prostitutes or slaves to buy and have sex with? Um, this is uh, a relatively recent development. Back in the time of Cato, if an aristocrat got dressed in ladies' clothing, they would think he was Pentheus and they would lock him up. <laughs> but nowadays, um, a man in a dress can claim to be a woman. And there are some people who say, yeah, of course he is. He is what he says he is. I mean, of course, he's no more a woman than he is you know, a fire truck. <laughs> but <laughs> there's nothing anybody can do about that. Right? Um, the general decay of cultural mores to the point where people have even forsaken being hypocritical 
right, which is the last refuge of uh, a bad conscience, all right, the, they've gone past that for juvenile. Right? And they probably can't be redeemed. That's the, one of the difficulties in juvenilian satire. If people are this bad, fixing anything that's this messed up, there's pretty much no chance of doing that. So why do this? And the answer is because Juvenal's having a really good time. He is enjoying himself immensely because he like because he's powerfully misanthropic. Yeah. He even says that other people get their fun like through games and sports games, but his fun is in writing. Yeah, he there said, we go. His fun is writing. Yeah. That's right. So he's enjoying himself, and uh, what that means is he's giving in to his emotional impulses in the way characteristic of poets rather than adulterers, yeah. What do you mean they've gone past hypocrisy? They've gotten to the point where they're shameless rather than pretending to be a real Roman in armor and uh, you know having the Roman virtues that we see in Aeneas like Pietas. They openly scoff at Pietas and get dressed up in ladies' clothing. So is Juvenal the last Roman hypocrite then? Well, uh, it could be. I mean, he's certainly one of the most conspicuous. I wouldn't go so last because we still got another couple hundred years of Rome. But uh, hypocrisy uh, is a bad thing. But even worse than hypocrisy is the absence of hypocrisy. Right? Uh, Bruce Jenner is now a woman. How do we know this? He says so. Okay. Um, prior to this, um, someone who is a transvestite would be described as having a mental illness. Recently, that has become sanity. And, of course, what that means is that uh, the idea of mental illness itself is the contemporary domain of moral judgment dressed in a white lab coat. You see recently from the American Psychological Association, it turns out that men are sick because of their toxic masculinity. You haven't seen this? Oh, it recently got, uh, uh, you've seen it, yeah. Um, it recently was decided that toxic masculinity is ubiquitous and uh, men are deeply ill. All right, so get dressed in ladies' clothing and then you'll be mentally balanced. <laughs> I mean, you wonder, how much worse is it going to get? Um, as Cormac McCarthy says, there are no absolutes in human depravity. Things can always get worse. And he's right about that, unfortunately. I mean, I wonder, you know, who knows what tomorrow's Twitter contribution from Mr. Trump will look like. <laughs> Let's not go there. All right? Um, Swift, as you pointed out, is the best example of a juvenilian sound. I mean, that's what makes Swift so much fun to read. He hates everybody. But he's a Christian clergyman, for God's sake. But no mercy to anybody, all right? Um, strange, I once, had, I, mean, I once assigned Smith's uh, satire modest proposal, do any of you know that? Uh -huh. Where he says, look, you've been so harsh with the Irish, why not just break down and eat them, all right? You can skin their infants, turn them into really nice gloves, be about the right size. And, well, why not? I mean, look, what you're doing now is not any, it, significantly different from that. So why not break down and do it? Hold it for a second. He also wrote a wonderful piece called uh, 
an essay against the abolition of Christianity. And the reason why he is opposed to the abolition of Christianity is because it may cause the stock of the East India Company to decline by 1%. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Swift is really great, I have to admit, but he's juvenilian and a Christian at the same time. One of the strange events in my teaching career, um, when I was in graduate school and I was teaching you know, as an adjunct at NYU, among other places, I assigned a modest proposal, and I was putting stuff on the board um, the way I usually do before class. And a girl comes into my classroom, she's the first one in, and she's bent on confronting me. She's, she's, she hissed, this guy wants to eat babies. <laughs> there are some mistakes that are so gross that you can't even begin to explain them. You know, it's like telling your dinner guests that it's customary to eat the lobster only after it's out of the shell. <laughs> yeah. It's actually an uncommon, not an uncommon mistake. I have had other professors who've told me the same thing. Americans are impervious to irony. That's one of the things that pisses off Europeans. Because when they're dissing us, we often can't tell. <laughs> Which pisses them off enormously. They get all juvenilian on us then. No. Uh, uh, the American inability to be ironic is one of the things that impedes the reading of Plato, for example. But yeah, um, she was, and I don't even know what to say to her, but where do I begin to explain this? <laughs> do not do me any violence, I will explain this to the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, what we have here are two of the finest products of Roman poetry. This is something the Romans are good at. And we can understand why. They were wildly wicked because they had the opportunity to be wildly wicked. Poor, powerless people rarely are as wicked, are as interestingly wicked as these guys are. Right? You need the opportunity to let your libido go, all right, which the Romans have in spades. <clears throat> this actually, I mean, and this is pointing to next year, but let me close with this idea. Next year we're going to read some of the great comedies in the Western tradition. I think the greatest comedy in the Western tradition is Measure for Measure, but I'm the only one who thinks so. That's because everyone else is wrong. <laughs> oh no, I mean, I worked on that for about 25 years. I actually cracked it, and I, mean, I, I think I put it away. But uh, the second greatest comedy is Moliere's The Misanthrope. Moliere's The Misanthrope. He doesn't like anybody. And he hates French culture, which he perceives as decadent and depraved. And his pal says, look, you got to learn to put up with people's transgressions because, well, you're not all that perfect either. What it is, is a play. It's a comedy about comedy. 
what he's doing is talking about the Horatian and Juvenilian traditions in company and saying, look, I understand the attraction of juvenile. I'd like to flog everybody too. But, number one, I have to realize that I'm not any better than they are. And number two, they pay my bills. All right? Um, if you read that, you will find that it is one of the great commentaries by a comedian on comedy. And it's derived from Horace and Juvenal. That's what's actually going on there. All right. Uh, Lucian the Skeptic, Philosophers for Sale. All right. Um, this is what happens when you get overloaded with information, either in a Roman slave market or on the internet. All right. Eventually, skepticism emerges. And the problem is that skepticism is uh, a distant second best to knowing the truth about anything, if there is any such truth to know. Questions about this? No? OK. I'll see you on Thursday. Hopefully, I won't be as sick then as I am now. There'll be no office hours today, because you don't want to be in the same room with me. You will get this. And then everyone in your dorm room will have it, and I will have been the typhoid Mary of ANU. <laughs> all right, I'll see you all on Thursday. Thursday is Lucian. Oh, thank you. Check out this other one. This one's just 15, For real? This was 15 minutes Florida ago. So cold. Everyone's so cold. Global warming. Boring. Wow. Pretty good. Pretty good. I like how you're the classic. I got it. I know. I Yeah. Exactly. Trump's Twitter account is pretty funny. Yeah. It sounds like a. 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 It s